Welcome to Israel Islam and End Times. My name is Daniel Sackham. I'm the founding director of the ministry. It gives me great pleasure to introduce to you my next guest to be interviewed. His name is Dr. Bill Warner, and he is regarded as the world's leading authority on political Islam. He is an author as well as a scientist. He has a PhD in applied physics and mathematics from North Carolina University. He's also the head of the Center of the Study of Political Islam, which he founded as a result of his research into Islamic doctrine. He has written a, a number of different books and is a highly sought out speaker and commentator on the topic of political Islam. Please welcome Dr. Bill Warner. Dr. Warner, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for inviting me and having me here. As a former professor, it's always nice to have another opportunity to teach. Now, there is a lot that has happened since 9-11, and we've now gotten to the point where Islam is on the news pretty much nearly every weeknight. What has happened since 9-11 that Islam has grown to such prominence? What has happened to our world is that we are resuming what had been left off before the colonial period of the Europeans. Translation. Islam is now powerful in the sense that it has money and it has gone back to what it should have been doing in the first place, which was to always oppose the Kafir. We have to understand that the relentless quality of Islam was brought to us by Muhammad. Muhammad committed 100 acts of jihad in the last nine years of his life, and that averages out to be about once a month, hence the relentless quality of the jihad. And let me say something here. We need to use the right word, which is jihad. These are not events of terror. They do contain that element, but you see, when we use the word terror, it doesn't give us the real source of the suffering, which is Islam. When we say jihad, we know what the source of the material suffering is. So, the other part of the Islamic doctrine is, is that jihad is to be waged until every single person is a Muslim and that the Sharia rules the entire world. So, we have money, we have a, a charge to conquer the world, and so, Islam is back at it. We just had a brief respite when the colonial powers were in the Middle East. They're rich enough to wage war, and that's what they're doing. And by the way, in speaking of waging war, let me point this out. The war of the sword and the bomb and the bullet is the least of our problems. The real waging of war is being done in our schools and our churches, our institutions, our political organizations. The real war, the real jihad, is the jihad of the pen, that is by writing, Jihad of the sword, which is not as important, although it's spectacular. Jihad of the mouth and speech, and jihad of money. And so it's the jihad of speech, money, and writing that's the real important jihad. Let's talk about trajectories. Where do you see Europe in the near future? I mean, when you consider the hundreds of thousands of Muslim refugees that have been pouring into Europe, with especially the liberal countries such as Belgium, Sweden, Germany, um, what kind of a Europe will we expect in the near future? And would we expect some of those countries to actually even fall to Islam in the near future? What are your thoughts on that? First, I hear this kind of question a lot about, well, is it near the end? Look and see what's happening. Even in a country with a lot of Muslims in it, the Kafirs, the non-believers, the infidels, are in a great majority. 
the problem is not the quantity of Muslims coming in. The problem is, is that Europeans, like those in America, have sort of lost the will to win. If we want to win, and that's the most important part of the fight, then we can win. So all of these nations, it's possible to turn it around. History is a nonlinear affair. It doesn't just go steady, steady, steady. It goes up and hits ceilings, and then suddenly things change. So we're nowhere near the end here. This is a 1,400-year struggle. And if we will ever engage in the fight, we can win. But first, we have to engage. Let me make this point again. Winning this war does not depend upon the strength of the Muslims. It depends upon our willingness to fight. If we're willing to defend our civilization, and this is a civilizational war, they can, we can win, and we can win easily. We have two enemies here. We have the far enemy, which is Islam, and then we have the near enemy, which are the apologists for Islam. The way we win this war is to not worry about the Muslims. We need to worry about those apologists who are non-Muslims who are making the way easy for Islam. Let me give you an example. Here in Tennessee, the textbooks in the seventh grade of grammar school now are written basically by Islam. But the Muslims wrote the material, but it was non-Muslims, Kafirs, who run the textbook companies who put it in, and it was non-Muslims, Kafirs, who decided that they wanted to do the textbooks this way. So we have to understand that it is the apologists for Islam who are the real problem, and they're the ones we need to deal with. Now, there's an upside to this, by the way. Most people don't know many Muslims, and if they do, they either don't think about it or they're afraid of them. Well, since here in Nashville, Tennessee, one of the apologists for Islam who's doing the most to advance Islam is a Methodist minister, a Christian clergyman, then my goodness, why do I have any fear to go deal with a Methodist minister? Who's afraid of them? So we, if we clearly understand who our enemies are, it's easy enough to win this war. You have referred previously in some of your talks to the law of Islamic saturation. You say that when Islam enters a country, it reaches to a certain point where it becomes irreversible and gets to the stage where Islam subjugates that nation. At what percentage or at what point do you put that to? Actually, my law of saturation, which just comes from observing history, doesn't preach that there's a critical point. It just says that once Islam enters a society, its strength will grow and grow and grow until finally Islam becomes all of this society. Let me give you an example in Turkey, which in the book of Revelation is called Asia Minor, also called Anatolia. Turkey used to be Greek and Christian, but today there's only a handful of Christians left. So it took centuries to do this. So the law of Islamic saturation predicts the end of, well, it will be the complete end of Christianity in Turkey within another hundred years. I think it's 0.3% of Turkey is still Christian, and that will all go away. So it takes centuries, but in the end, Islam dominates and wins all, except there's been two times in history in which the Kafirs decided, no, we're not gonna stand for this. It happened in Spain, it took the Christians in Spain 700 years, but they finally drove the Muslims out. And it happened in, the, in Europe. So we can win, it's just that we need to decide we want to win. But the law of Islamic saturation says, unless we oppose in a very direct way, we will cease to exist as a civilization. Another trajectory I'd like to talk to you about is what's actually happening in the United Nations. What are your thoughts on the disturbing trend of Islam having disproportionate influence over the United Nations and where that will be leading us in the future? Well, the United Nations. 
it sounds so good on paper and it works so badly in execution. Actually, I have a motto which works well in our country, which is UN out of US, US out of UN. But that's just my personal motto. The United Nations is dominated by the OIC, the Organization of Islamic Conference, or Islamic Cooperation. The name has changed over the years and I never am quite sure. Here's the point about the OIC that is most ruinous to the United States and Europe. It is the OIC, the 57 Muslim nations, that determine what is a refugee. So here in America we get refugees, but they're Muslim refugees. Why are they Muslim refugees? Because the OIC applies Sharia law, which says no, the Christian and the Jew and the whoever else is always subjugated to the Muslim. So they're applying Sharia law. The problem is, in America, we don't question this. The great tragedy is, even amongst the churches, there's no pushback from the churches to say, whoa, if we've got to take refugees, why don't we bring in Christians? So the problem is, the Muslims care, the Muslims want to win, and the Muslims are willing to do whatever it takes. And here in America, the churches and other good people are simply not willing to say, well, you know, we need to change things. In America, there is a massive passivity about Islam. Whatever they want to do, just let them go, leave them alone, because, you know, if we oppose them, we'll be bigots and haters. So there is a dreadful pro progress in the United Nations, and it is all against us. But the idea sounds so good, Bill. I tell you, when I was young, they told me that the road to hell was paved in good intentions, and I thought, I don't know about that. Well, let me tell you something. I'm 75 years old and I'm telling you this. The road to hell is paved with good intentions and one of the biggest paving stones to hell is the United Nations. Here's another thing about the United Nations. Since it's at the very peak of the moral mountain, if you will, here's what I find when it comes to Islam. The higher you go, the less they know. And I don't think that our representatives who go to the United Nations know anything about Islam, but they're willing to sit there and smile. What are your thoughts on the extraordinary vice grip of political correctness that's on the West at the moment? Especially with what we've been seeing happening in Europe. We've seen a, a woman holding up a sign that says, we'll trade racists for rapists. Even some Swedish women who are saying that they even deserve to be raped by the Muslim migrants. Are we witnessing the Stockholm Syndrome being played out before our eyes? Well, the United States is definitely part of the West. I haven't seen that sign, but nevertheless, we see that the United States is gripped in the throes of political correctness. Political correctness has been brought on here in America by all of those with good intentions. But it has, what has happened is, is there's no longer honest discourse in the United States. For giving talks such as I'm giving right now, I have been called by the Southern Poverty Law Center, which is a left-wing organization funded in great part by the United States government, They've said that I'm one of America's top 10 haters, biggest bigots and racists and Islamophobes. Now, these are strange things to say to me. They also say I'm a Muslim basher, which is really odd because as you'll listen to me throughout this talk, I never talk about Muslims, except Muhammad. So here's the deal. When I was young, there was a saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. I now live in a country in which people are horrified and anyone saying anything against them. So they will buckle under and do anything as long as you don't call them a racist. And by the way, a big irony of me being called a racist. When I was young, I took part in civil rights, did community organization, voter registration, demonstrations, leafleting. And then I taught for eight years in an all black university. But 
because I say that the Sunnah of Muhammad is evil or commits evil against the Kafir, I'm a racist. I mean, the point I'm making here is, is that the names don't even need to make any sense. In America, people are so gun-shy that they're like, uh, don't call me names, I'll do anything if you just won't call me a name. Political correctness is destroying critical thought. Our society, our civilization is built upon critical thought and the golden rule. Critical thought is the intellectual cornerstone, the golden rule is the ethical cornerstone. Critical thought, without it, we don't have anything left. In our universities now, you can, this happened here in Nashville, Tennessee. At a university, there's a wonderful black professor. Luckily, she's tenured. And she said something in her class. She says, this is politically incorrect. And she went ahead to state it. There was such horror. Now, they couldn't call her a racist because in America, if you're black, you can't be called a racist. White man only. The university condemned her in public and then went ahead and from the office of the president, there came out a directive that if these students who had been exposed to these ideas and words were so traumatized that they had set up special counseling for students who had been horrors, heard an idea they didn't agree with. This is the nadir of intellectual thought, where a new idea that you don't like is going to cause you to have trauma. You're going to become psychotic or something because you didn't like the idea. That's where it's all leading to. It's a dead end to our society. Political correctness is the greatest evil in our society today. Maybe it's not, but I can make a case for it if you have another one you think is worse. Let me say one thing more about this. The reason that the left is winning on this issue is they're willing to take to the streets. They're willing to be confrontational. In America, the conservatives are not willing to be confrontational. They like to talk to themselves, write emails to each other, write well-reasoned articles that are on their own web pages. And the logic is good, the conclusions are good, but they're not willing to show up in the public marketplace of ideas. That is, conservatives in America, they don't pick up signs. They don't go into the classrooms of America and debate about it. So as a result, the classrooms are free of conservative thought or conventional thought. And the reason is the conservatives are too gutless to show up. They're only comfortable with their own. That's one of the remarkable things about me. I'll get in anybody's face. Unfortunately, we have too few of me. I don't mean to be bragging about myself, but I am saying that at least I will stand up. And most of the conservatives will complain to themselves and then their own websites. So you can't just blame the left for winning. I blame us for losing. Last year, when Islamic State released that video of those Coptic Christians who were beheaded on the beach in Libya, they opened up the video with the title that said, A Message Signed with Blood to the Nation of the Cross. Who are they referring to when they say the Nation of the Cross? The Nation of the Cross. Islam has a fixation on the, on the cross. And when they take over a church, the first thing they do is break the cross. And whenever they appear in a church, if at all possible, they ask for the crosses to be covered up. Now, what is an enormous tragedy is that Christians will invite Muslims into their church and then cover up the religious symbols because they don't want to offend. You see, here in America, the churches don't want to offend anybody for any reason. They're all addicted to the doctrine of nice, not the doctrine of Christ. So the nation of the cross is America or anyone else who has a church in it. Now, what's ironic, of course, is, is that America no longer claims to be a, a Christian nation. 
we had our current president even tell us that no, 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 it's Christ America is not a Christian nation. And in a strange way, they're all right. But what it was happened was in the formation of America is that it was founded on civilizational principles that were Christian. This was not formed to be a Christian nation in the formal sense, but it was to be based on Christian ideals and principles. Now, another word they use for us is crusader, and they hate the word crusade. So they call us nation of the cross or crusade. Now, as America, we're called also by the Shiite, the great Satan. And the little Satan is Israel. That is, we're the great Satan and Israel's the little Satan. So in a broad sense, believe it or not, the nation of the cross, even in a strange way, includes uh, Israel. Islamists often say that they will conquer the Romans or the Crusaders. Who are they referring to when they say they will conquer the Crusaders or, or the Romans? Well, we've already covered the bit about the Crusader, but the Rome which is spelled in the uh, most Arabic, uh, tra most translations out of Arabic as the Rum, R-U-M, which the word does appear in the Quran. Now, oddly enough, the Rome was not Rome of um, Rome, Italy. Instead, this was Constantinople. The Byzantine Empire was what they called Rome. This, the, the title shifted over even though it was referring to the western part of the uh, empire. So what they mean by Rome is basically all of the West. It means Europe. So that's what Rome means. And it, of course it occurs in the Quran, so that strengthens the use of it. Dr. Warner, how does Islam define a Christian? What constitutes a Christian in their eyes? This question is very interesting. Because Islam has done something which Christianity has never been able to do. Islam unifies Christianity. Anyone who believes that Jesus is the Son of God is a Christian. End of question, end of analysis, doesn't make any difference whether you're the Pope or a preacher. Just simply makes no difference. So in its own odd way, Islam has accomplished what Christians have never been able to do. There's only one church, and that's the one that believes in Jesus and they're to all be taken down and destroyed. In America, the progressive churches are willing to accept the fact that there is a Christ figure, sort of character really, and the Quran is saying, oh see, not a, they may not be able to see all Christians as one, but they're willing to say to the Muslims, oh you and us, we're one, because you also believe in Jesus. Well, there is no Jesus in the Quran, let's make that very clear. There's a character called Isa, E-S-S-A or I-S-S-A, which is sort of a pseudo-Jesus. But for the Christians who are progressives, that's entirely enough. Even though the pseudo-Jesus was not even the Son of God, was not crucified, did not die, was not resurrected. And the Isa, his purpose in the Quran is to tell the world that Ahmed is coming. So even though the Jesus is a totally fake Jesus, in America, the progressive churches are willing to say to the Muslims, oh, this is wonderful. We, you believe in Jesus, we believe in Jesus. Why, we're practically brothers, but like I say, they don't consider themselves brothers with the churches they disagree with, but only the Muslims who tell them a beautiful lie. It has been said of Islam, particularly political Islam, that it is communism with a god. Do you agree with that statement? What similarities are there between communism and political Islam? Well, I've said that Islam is communism with a god, 
And when I went to Europe, I was just interested to see that in the former Soviet bloc in places like Czech, they say the same thing. If we had the jackboot of the Soviets on our neck for years until we finally threw them out, now we have a new communist come in, but they have a God and they're more powerful than communism without a God. And I think their insights are very good here. Now, one of the things they share, by the way, is the fact that communism sees itself as a world-dominating system, as does Islam. Communism has a big emphasis on the community or the, I'll call it the, oh, what's the word I want here, the hive, the group, whereas the conservatives tend to be more about individuals. Well, you see there's a strong link here to Islam because Islam puts holes up the ummah, the Muslim community in the highest position. The ummah is greater than the individual. So the communists share with the Muslims world domination and the emphasis on the community or the group. Does that help to explain the uncanny alliance between Islam and the left? Yes. In America, as in Europe, the big enemy is not Islam, but the left. Now, the left are utopians. I knew a woman one time who was a former, she was still a communist, and I made some remark about the incredible suffering that happened under Mao Zedong, Pol Pot, and Stalin. And she says, oh, but that wasn't real communism. So here we have an idealist talking. The facts don't matter. In Persia, while well, it's called Iran now, it was the left, the Tudor party, who brought Khomeini to power. And five days after Khomeini came to power, he issued death warrants for the leaders of all the Tudor parties. So the left sees themselves as the hammer and they see Islam as the anvil. What they do not realize is this alliance is quite temporary. And as soon as Islam comes to power, there go the left. Why have some elements within Islam been so against Western technology and Western education? Well, this question is sort of half right. There are many Muslims who are not at all against education. Uh, now, they have trouble with it because, you see, our education used to be based on critical thought. And, for instance, in science, we have the laws of nature and cause and effect. Islamic doctrine does not obey cause and effect. And as a matter of fact, it says there are no natural laws because if there were, they would tie up the hand of God. So, many Muslims are well-educated. Now then, having said that, let me say there's another trend within Islam. And by the way, Islam is very dualistic. I don't really know of anything that doesn't occur in two forms that contradict each other. I call this Islamic dualism. So while there are some Muslims who are quite well-educated, I mean, who do you think is working on the uh, uranium bombs, the atomic bombs for Pakistan? So they need to higher education. And by the way, as in dualism, there's always an argument. One of the hadith from Muhammad said, seek knowledge no matter where you have to find it, go to China if necessary. Well, so that's a educate yourself as you need to get educated. But the Quran is supreme of all knowledge, so anything that contradicts the Quran cannot be used in education. So there are also Muslims who are very strict, who maintain, for instance, Islamic State is using modern technology, but in the schools they run, you only get to teach, you get to be taught Sharia, memorize the Quran. So they have very ambiguous and contradictory attitude. We need the technology to kill the Kafir, but on the other hand, to our own children, we want to teach them nothing but the Sunnah and the Quran. So you're half right. 
some of them do agree, argue with modern education and others say, no, we need it to beat the Kafir. And also just a real, uh, regular life. You have to understand that Muslims are like a lot of other people, Christians, Democrats, Republicans, or whatever. They may say they're with a certain group, but that doesn't mean they really run their life 100% according to that group. So, yes, there are reasons for Muslims to not want to be educated, but there are others for do so. Now, we've all heard of honor killings and how a Muslim father would tragically murder his own daughter because she was deemed to be too westernized. What is the reasoning behind this? Islam has a doctrine of the kafir, K-A-F-I-R, the non-believer. And I always use the word kafir because that is the word the Quran uses. It's also the word the Muslims use. They don't really call us infidels or non-Muslims, they call us kafir. Because you see, Allah hates the kafir. Over half of Islamic doctrine is the doctrine about the kafir. So it's overwhelmingly important. But anyway, so the kafir is despised, hated, and maligned. The kafir can be terrorized, killed, raped, enslaved. The kafir is lower than an animal. So, since the West is composed of kafirs, if your daughter becomes too westernized, that means she's becoming too kafirized. Now, there's a hadith in which it says, if you get too close to the kafir, and by the way, there are 12 Quran verses which says the kafir is never the true friend of the Muslim, or at least the Muslim is never the true friend of the kafir, so, Islam rejects in its entirety that there is any, any good in the kafir. So, you look and you see your daughter's wanting to wear Western blue jeans, she wants to listen to Western music. Well, there's nothing worse than the kafir. So, as a result, it's only necessary, since she brought shame to the family, that you regain your honor with the blood sacrifice of killing her. Shame honor societies are dreadful. Just a flat statement. Dr. Warner, why is Islam so preoccupied with the city of Jerusalem? It's almost come to a point of obsession. Why is that the case? The obsession with Jerusalem starts with Muhammad's life. There is what's called the night journey, which is referred to in one verse in the Quran. And in the night journey, Muhammad is awakened in the middle of the night by the archangel Gabriel. She, he, well, I don't know whether you call an angel he or she. The angel kicks his foot three times to wake him up. So he gets up in the middle of the night, they go outside, and here's this miracle creature called Barak, which is sort of a horse or a mule with wings on its feet, and it has the remarkable quality of every time it takes a stride, it puts its foot on the horizon, and so it advances very fast. So, Muhammad goes to Jerusalem. Well, what it really says is the far mosque, but this is interpreted as being Jerusalem. There's a whole issue there to the side. So the golden ladder is raised to heaven and they go up and the, Muhammad goes through the seven levels of heaven. He sees Adam who's looking at souls who are newborn. He works his way up. He says, by the way, as he goes through the different heavens and meets the different prophets, that the prophet he most resembles is Abraham. Gets all the way up to Moses who's in the seventh heaven. There he goes to see uh, Allah. And there's a going back and forth about how many times a Muslim should pray, which starts out with 50. When he comes back down, Moses said, how many times did he say for you to pray today? Well, he said 50. He says, oh, 50 is too much. Your people are not strong enough for that. Go back and get a better deal. So they go back and forth until finally Muhammad comes down with five prayers. And Moses said, that's still too much. Go back and get him down to three. Your people can do three. 
but Muhammad was too embarrassed to go back and haggle with Allah anymore. The point is, is that this, and by the way, his wife said he never left the house that night. So when he came back and told the story, this dream represents the only claim that Islam has on Jerusalem. And like I say, the hadith or the story of Muhammad doesn't really even include the word Jerusalem, it's just the far mosque. But upon this claim, they claim Jerusalem. Now, you have to understand, in Islam, once you own something, a piece of land, it is always Islam's. That's the reason that the Muslims refer to Spain as their territory. It's theirs, and they see all of Eastern Europe as theirs because their foot was once there. So that is their claim for Jerusalem. But the political reason, the psychological reason, is simple. Islam must dominate everything. Islam is to replace and crush Christianity. It's to replace and crush Judaism. And so therefore, this is a symbolic action. Islam has subjugated Jesus, has subjugated the Christian, has subjugated Moses, and has subjugated the Jew. So that's the reason they must have Jerusalem, because they will subjugate everything. Remember, war, jihad is to be done until all the world submits, including Jerusalem. One of the things that is disturbing from the Islamic scriptures is the amount of Jew hatred that is there. Why is that the case? Can you explain the reasoning behind that? I've dwelt in my talk so far most of the time about dealing with Islam and Christianity, but Islam despises the Jew more than it despises the Christian. As a matter of fact, there's even a Quranic verse which says that the Christian is a better man than the Jew. Now, Islam has two totally different views about the Jews, and we need to be clear about these. The first thing is, in the early part of the Quran, the Quran written in Mecca, the Jews are elevated to the status of ideal people because Muhammad had a problem. Here he was, a middle-aged businessman, and he now is going to be prophet of God for all the world. Well, if you're a middle-aged businessman and you come back to your community and say, God's talking to me through his archangel and he's telling me how to run your life, you look and go, are you crazy? No, you're a middle-aged businessman. Why do we care what you say? So he proved his prophecy by doing this. You see, the Archangel Gabriel is speaking to me. The Archangel Gabriel is the same Archangel that gave the laws to Moses, uh, the Psalms to David. So therefore, it's the same Archangel, the same Jewish angel, if you will. So therefore, Muhammad had proved himself by saying he was the last in the lineage of the Jewish prophets. So therefore, the Jewish prophets are good people. David, uh, Musa, Moses, Solomon. So these are all good people. Now what happened was, when he went to Medina, there were no Jews to speak of in Mecca, so no one could say, what do you mean? But when he got to Medina, everything changed. Because there, there were three Jewish tribes. They comprised half of the population of Medina, and they looked at Moses, uh, not Moses, at Muhammad and said, uh-uh, you are not the prophet of our God because you see, also claimed to have the same God. Now, it turns out nobody got to offend Muhammad. He was offended. So it took him two years, but after two years, the three Jewish tribes were crushed. They were exiled, they were executed, they were enslaved. So Islam, Muhammad, completely subjugated the Jews. Now, you think that might be enough because he killed all of them in his hometown, but there were other Jews around. And he made it his point to attack and crush the Jews of Kaibar and the Jews of Fadak. So therefore, it is the purpose of Islam to absolutely and completely subjugate 
the tribe of people who said to him, you are not a prophet. So there is a fixation that Islam has with the Jew, and it is a fixation that will not go away. Let me assure you of that. Dr. Warner, thank you so much for agreeing to be interviewed by Israel Islam and End Times, and thank you for your well thought out answers, and we appreciate all the research that has gone into what you do. And at some future point, we would love to have you back on the show. God bless you. Well, it was a pleasure being able to talk with you. I thank you so much for the work you're doing. We need many more people like you, people who will ask difficult questions and then present the truth to the world. Thank you for my opportunity. Thank you so much for watching. If you'd like to know more about with what's happening with Israel, Islam and End Times, please go to our website. It's www.israelislamandendtimes.com. On the website, you can find a whole range of different topics with what is going on in the world at the moment, particularly with what's happening within Israel and with what's happening in the Middle East, in particularly with the Syrian crisis, with Islamic State and all the surrounding nations that are surrounding Israel. Also, we focus on topics to do with what's happening in the West, particularly with what's the rise of liberalism in America and the implications that that has for the rest of the world. Also check out our YouTube channel. We have interviews with world leading authorities on different topics regarding Israel, Islam and end times, as well as recorded talks from our previous seminars. Also like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter and also on Google+. If you believe in what we're doing with this ministry and you would like to get behind us, support us, then please pray for us. Your prayers are greatly appreciated. And also consider giving financially to the ministry. Please go to our website at www.israelislamandendtimes.com forward slash donate. And there you'll find a range of different options in which you can financially support the ministry. Thank you very much.